Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now on We Love Movies, we are going to take a look at what is playing in cinemas this weekend. And joining me is Chris Wasser, Olivia Fahey and Andy McCarroll. Chris, going to come to you first because um, out this week, we finally have uh, Guillermo del Toro's follow up to his Oscar winning film, um, which is, of course, uh, Shape of Water. Um, but he's very much keeping within that kind of noir feel with Nightmare Alley starring Bradley Cooper. Uh, plot wise, what's going on? Uh, plot wise, Bradley Cooper plays a, a chap by the name of Stanton Carlyle, and he is a bit of a drifter. I mean, in the opening scene, we see him burn down a house with a body inside that he's actually pulled in and put in so, sort of a, a basement area, burn down the house, hits the road, doesn't know where he's going. And we don't know what he's done or what he's about. But the last stop on this bus um, is in Midwestern America. It's actually at a carnival. And we're in 1930s America. And he just literally wanders into this carnival full of, you know, freaks and uh, eccentric figures like Willem Dafoe's Clem and, and Xena, the, 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 the medium played by Tony Collette. And he basically picks up a gig, you know, just basically, you know, helping out at this carnival. And eventually he realizes, oh, I kind of want to put together an act here, you know, and he thinks he has it in him to be a mentalist. So he trains under Tony Collette's Xena and under Willem Dafoe's Clem and eventually becomes you know eventually he impresses so much that he thinks you know he kind of gets ahead of himself believes his own hype and he and he grows tired of you know the tent life and thinks I'm going to take this, you know, burgeoning mentalist act to the big smoke, to Chicago. He's also going to bring uh, his fellow performer, Molly, played by Rooney Mara with him. The two of them have a, a little bit of a thing going on. And he goes off to the big city and he becomes this big medium. Now, if it sounds as though I'm giving too much of the plot away, this is this all happens early on. This is the basic premise. And it's when he's in the big city that he encounters this uh, Trixie psychologist uh, played by Kate Blanchett. And that's when things get weird. That's when he begins to, you know, think bigger and think even more dangerous than he had done before and if i give anything more away it'll only be spoiling things all right let's just take a little bit now from guillermo del toro's all-star cast in nightmare alley now brief as you can what is your name stanton carlisle are you a true medium yes i am mr carlisle doctor about that please lay down can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. Chris, it, it does sound like an intriguing premise, uh, Guillermo yeah. del Toro's new film. There's also something very, it seems attractive for an awful lot of filmmakers who love to... Uh, kind of flirt with the sort of the darker uh, horror elements when it comes to the, the, the traveling carnival, the carny folk. There just yeah. seems to be something there. You, even like I'm just off the top of my head, like Tim Burton, obviously he's been attracted. I know Neil Jordan on a, another side of it. He always seems to be attracted to that sort of seaside amusement side of things. But um, what is it you think about that carnival side that kind of attracts filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro? Well, it's an interesting one because Guillermo del Toro is actually coming from The Shape of Water. Five, it's five years since The Shape of Water, which wow. is astonishing. Uh, and, he, and a very different film. But he's coming from what was at times a very straight up horror to a film that flirts with the idea of horror. And if you look at the trailers or any of the promos for, for Nightmare Alley, you could be mistaken for thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is a spooky bedtime story. But you know this is a full-blown horror it's not and it's constantly reminding you too that all of this you know everything that bradley cooper stanton carlisle is doing is a bit of a trick mm. um so it's quite weird in that it is it does have the ability to freak you out i mean this film is just laced 
with dread and a lot of that is to do with the carnival setup i mean there's something about the you know especially you know the pre-war carnival setup where it's everybody involved in this is exhausted they're all a bit eccentric they're all oddball characters who have literally drifted into this way of life no one set out to be a carnival worker or a freak show act so once you bring together that you know a, a, a cast of misfits you know played by great actors in the film ron perlman is in there too um it it, it just you, you can you can have as much fun as, as you want you can go as dark as you want you can go as silly as you want Guillermo del Toro is certainly going for the darkness in this one um what I will say is he's actually working with something that we've seen before and we've read before because Nightmare Alley is a novel by William Lindsay Gresham uh it was made into a film in the 1940s it's a bit of an odd one that for his follow-up to an Oscar-winning feature like The Shape of Order he would take something that we've seen before I wasn't expecting that Mm, because I kind of worry as well, Chris, that this film might go the same way as, do you remember Crimson Peak, which yeah. starred Tom Hiddleston? And a lot of people went in going, oh, it's going to be very much horror. And it had more gothic elements to it, but it just sort of disappeared a little bit. And it was it was really a game of the tour, really trying to get into doing a proper kind of romance out of the caliber of films that he'd done to that date. Whereas I'm kind of a bit worried with Nightmare Alley because it's already stateside. It's announced it's um, it's VOD, like it's premium VOD release. And now it seems like I know, granted, we're getting a cinema release here, but will it have the staying power? Will it have the pulling uh, attraction, even with a, an all star cast? I don't know. It just this film doesn't seem like it's 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 found its audience at the moment. No, I don't think so. And I think it will struggle to find an audience. It's one of those cases. This happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Where a director will have, you know, great success, you know, and have a huge triumph in award season and, and then I'm a box office with one film and then the follow-up always kind of just you know it sinks without a trace almost we saw it with Damien Chazelle after La La Land releasing First Man a very different type of film and nobody went to see it and that I, I don't know it's a bit of an Oscar curse it's a weird one we can come back to that another day but with this um whereas The Shape of Water was very charming quite optimistic very strange but you know at times was almost you know a great big warm hug of a film i mean mm. there's some freaky th- scenes in that picture but it was you know very charming at times this again is just laced with dread and it's kind of a you know a classic noir um again not you know horror but not really it doesn't really know what it is at times and that you know audiences maybe picked up on that in america and it's also geared towards an older audience and they didn't show up for it in america that might have something to do with covid that might have something to do with you know a busy time in the run to christmas it might have something else to do with Spider-Man No Way Home just dominating the entire box office. Whatever happens, not many people went to see this, which is a shame. But at the same time, it's not Del Toro's best film. I mean, I always think, you know, so-so Del Toro is better than no Del Toro. Mm. But at the same time, there are problems with this. I mean, it does not need to be 150 minutes long. I really, I felt that last 40 minutes. And I think you could easily cut 40 minutes from its runtime. Um, there are times when the performers in this film they've been poorly directed. I mean, I'm not really sure what Kate Blanchett thinks she's doing half the time. Bradley Cooper's character kind of, you know, depending on what he's, he's either, you know, loud and angry or and obnoxious or, you know, very quiet and not saying anything at all. And so there is a bit of a problem with the performances and, and it is very fond of itself. That said, that first hour in the carnival and, and the look of the film and, uh, uh, you know, the suspense, the dread, that worked wonders for me. So it's a very good film until it's not. I know that sounds a bit mm-hmm. weird. Um, and, you know, I, I do think Bradley Cooper is quite good in it, even if he is up and down, but it's not his best, Del Toro, I mean. Just very quickly, Chris, just before we get scores, now, because I want to bring Andy in next because Andy saw Scream and uh, that's still just doing huge business at the box office. But just finally, finally, um, on um, Nightmare Alley, I believe without giving anything away, the end shot 
is 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 something quite striking that that I think uh, Guillermo del Toro, if, if memory serves me right, he he said like it's one of his proudest endings. He's he's incredibly. It's like he came up with the ending pretty soon into his thought process of when he was dreaming up the idea for the film. What did you think of that ending without obviously spoiling anything? Yeah, I think the I think yeah, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, the final scene of the film it is in the original and it is in the book, but there's a little bit more in the original film. So yeah, I mean it's it's he's not working with something that hasn't already been done before. But if he means in terms of just the intimacy and just the performance from Cooper, the final shot it is quite striking. I know I said I could do it out the last 40 minutes of this, but the performance Bradley Cooper gives in the last five minutes it's something else it really wow. is um so yeah he he did create some it, you know look i know it sounds as though you know i'm saying this is this is maybe a bit of an average film there are moments of you know magnificence in here and and and, and again it just there's just too much of it okay out of 10 for nightmare ali chris i think we'll give it a, a solid six out of ten. Six out of ten for nightmare ali now last week you remember olivia and chris were very split on their thoughts on scream scream five and uh it's one of those, it's done very well stateside. And we were even chatting about this, that there just seems to be an appetite at the moment for a new scream. And January has proven to be a great month for horror movies to be released. Like you would think October is obviously the, the, the month for, for horror bearing in mind Halloween. But it, January, it just seems maybe people are just sick of the schmaltziness of uh, of Christmas and they just want something dark um, in, in cinemas uh, come the, the month of January. But anyway, Scream 5 has done incredibly well stateside. It may open uh, the, the the can for more. Uh, Andy, and now that you've seen it, um, I'm interested to know what, what side of the, the coin you're on here. Olivia, who is flying the flag for us. Chris, who was pretty down on it. Um, what are your thoughts on a Scream 5? Well, to quote Spinal Tap, I'm kind of lukewarm water. I'm in the <laughs> middle of this. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good. It wasn't what I wanted. It just, it had a, plot you could drive a truck through it there's this there's a central character that has let's say a trait and it is just so unbelievably stupid and uncanny valley in how it's delivered that you're just it takes you out of the film completely and what i wanted from this i've been saying for you know since this was announced i wanted a good murder mystery a haunted house film and it didn't deliver that and you know the the whole Scream films kind of live and die on, you know, the reveal and the motives and the mystery surround it. And I thought this was one of the flattest of any of the films. For me, it kind of ranks somewhere between Scream 3 and 4. I rewatched Scream 4 again during the week and have completely forgotten about it already. That film is made from the same thing they make those men in black pens from because the second you finish it, it's like it's erased from your memory again. I'd completely forgotten like Hayden Patnieri is in it and Emma Roberts. It's just like all these people are popping. I was like, when, when did you show up in this film? Oh, but, were, but, but yeah, but Scream 5 though, like Andy, um, again, we, were, we spoke about this last week. There's been an appetite for it. You think with new directors, there's new blood in there. They're obviously trying to pay homage to Wes Craven because he's such a huge influence just on their careers. This is the directing duo of the new Scream movie. And uh, you would have thought there's a lot of love that has been put into this. There has, and they clearly have a, a revenance for the, the central three characters. But I think the issue with Scream is that it doesn't have an iconic character. It has an iconic costume. So no matter who is in the Scream costume, 
they're the same person. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, it's Matthew Lillard who's in it or, if, you know, Timothy Oliver. From, he acts the same way, mm. but it doesn't have its own personality. And the characters don't change between movies. They're always a case of, okay, you get a phone call. Okay, Sydney, you're the victim. You're on the back foot for the whole film. Whereas with someone like, you know, let's say Sarah Connor or, or Laurie Strode in the new one, they react to the events of previous films. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, Nev Campbell needs to get shredded and have a six pack and start chasing Ghostface with, you know, two guns diving through the air. But it just always seems that she is always reacting to what's happening. She's never proactive and she never changes in a way that's very interesting on the screen. And none of the other characters do. Like, it's just kind of a case of, oh, we've gotten a little bit older. That's what, that's the difference between films. So it doesn't, feel like it's moved on it just feels like we've tried to you know they call it a requel in the film a remake sequel which is you know up there with disney for me for terrible terms <laughs> hey <laughs> do you know i'm going to bring olivia in very shortly but, but before i do here's just a little bit uh, from the the new screen movie most of the stab movies are based on things that happened here define things Things like a guy named billy loomis and his friend carved up a bunch of high school kids while wearing this Halloween ghost mask. And every decade or so, some idiot gets the bright idea to put on the mask, kill his friends, and get famous too. Last time it happened was in 2011. And I gotta make sure we don't get sliced up by some lunatic who saw Friday the 13th and thought, you know what, that Jason guy, he's got some pretty solid ideas. So just before that clip there from Scream, uh, Andy was pretty much down on some of the new terminology in the film, such as uh, uh, requel, um, which is a which is a play on uh, the idea of a, a remake and a sequel at the same time. And now, Olivia, I just want to quickly bring you in here, and uh, because you 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 defended this film last week, whereas Chris is pretty down on it. I did, and I am still. I was absolutely shocked to hear that Andy wasn't absolutely loving it because it is again, it's a scream film. It is. Like as much as you could say, it's like, oh, you'd love it for them to take it to the next level. But at the same time, it's like there is that kind of comfort in knowing exactly what you're going to get. And I just felt that for what my expectations were, it kind of surpassed it. So maybe my expectations were too low going into it. And that's why I was actually pleasantly surprised by it, as mm. opposed to Andy, who was literally like counting down the days until Scream was was released and then ended up slightly on the, the disappointed side of the scale. Like, was it absolutely perfect? No, I didn't give it like a perfect score. And actually, Andy touched on one of the reasons why, which I didn't didn't mention last week, because it is a little if you go into too much detail, it does spoil, so, spoil something for you. Mm. But it is kind of like that that kind of little thing that they do with the the lead character and it's just like it does take you out of the moment because it's not really done very well but if you just take that out it's like you're grand it's all good for me it didn't have a scene i rewatched all of them kind of in the lead up to this by the way scream 2 is up there one of the the all-time great sequels i it really i think it's under underappreciated i rewatched that i was like this is fantastic this was kind of you know much maligned at the time i was like oh, it's very inferior that's a really really good film and the reason i didn't get on board with this one as well. It didn't have a standout scene. You come out mm. of that, it's, it's the same thing with Scream 4. You just don't have anything memorable in it. Like Scream 1, obviously you have that, you know, amazing opening with Drew Barrymore. Scream 2, for me, I think the best scene in the series is the scene where they crash the cop car and they have to climb over him to get out the locked door. Yes. That scene is absolutely fantastic. I'd forgotten just how good that was. And then there's that brilliant jump scare at the end. This didn't have any of that. There was kind of much more gruesome kills and kind of sillier kills in a way. It was just kind of cartoonish, whereas I thought the, the Drew Barrymore scene in Scream 
really felt like you really felt horrible and like the thing with the parents showing up as well it just felt like a very real scene this felt like a cartoon from start to finish that we the thing we touched on last time the kind of the torture porn hostile era where you can't relate to any of that because yeah. it's so out there and it's so graphic this kind of leans more that way than than scream did whereas you know the, the guys in the kitchen stabbing each other like you feel every bit of that just looks ah oh. whereas this goes a bit too cartoony and a bit kind of John Wick with the kills. I disagree entirely. I think the kills were actually, they did take it up to another level. And yes, okay, they probably were slightly more on like the graphic side than we were used to with Scream, but not to the extent that it made it gruesome that you couldn't really watch. And like when you say that there was no, no standout scenes, like there are at least three that come into my mind. And yes, they are centered around some of the kills, but they were still very very good and i i still would be like no no that one will go down as one that i would write on the list of the best kills of scream kind of thing so mm. i i completely disagree yeah but for me i don't think they were scary or done in any interesting way like i think i know a few of the scenes you're talking about would you say that they were standouts because they were really well done or really well executed or just that oh this is really gruesome you need to see this no i would have said that they were really well executed and also it was also kind of surprising to see it like oh wow they kind of went there with some of the scenes like there is one I'm not going to spoil who it is but the one where it's literally like the knife goes right up their back severing the spinal cord and that I was just like oh but like it's there's no like shooting blood coming out of it it's just it, that's just the way that it's done and even if you're not familiar with that that's what's happened you do still kind of squirm so I think it was still subtle enough in the way that Scream kind of goes out well not subtle but like you know what I mean it's like it wasn't as as gory as you know it could have been but it still sort of like touched it touched a nerve shall we say oh out there, <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> I had to, I had to. And Andy wasn't, wasn't, but you can tell he wasn't pleasantly <laughs> impressed with that pun uh, at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of time as well, um, because we only have uh, Chris for a limited time this week. Chris is a, is a busy day ahead. Actually, some films playing that Chris needs to get to. So I'm just conscious to bring Chris back in. Chris, um, we're going to touch on a, on a couple of films very quickly. Um, yeah. My son with James McAvoy, Mass with Jason Isaac. Before we do, though, Scream, now that a week has passed, just to get your final thoughts there. Have you changed your mindset on it at all? Or did you think even worse? Oh, it's, it's a week since we last discussed Scream. And you know what? I've kind of forgotten that I've watched it at this stage. Um, and I do agree with the sentiment there that this scene or this film, it is missing, you know, for a legacy sequel or whatever the hell it thinks it is. It, it is missing iconic characters that, you know, act in a way that you would expect, you know, the Sarah Connor or, you know, the Laurie Strode kind of characters to, to, to act. Everything is just reacting to this killer. It's all about the costume. It doesn't even matter who's in the costume. So I agree with Andy th- uh, completely there. And also, I don't think, I mean, there are some gruesome kills in, the, in in this film, but gruesome kills don't make for iconic scenes, you know? And I, and I just think like it was missing suspense and it was missing, you know, a genuine kind of like skill in terms of the way the horror was set up in this film you know for if given the fact that they brought in the directors who made ready or not i thought yeah i'm like like andy i thought they might do something of a haunted house thing with this maybe that was too much to expect that the lads would want to basically remake the same film again you know this time in the scream universe um but yeah no a week later it still doesn't work for me unfortunately 
Yeah, it's like that with um, The Force Awakens. A lot of people went to see it, but uh, got lost in the formula of Star Wars again. And it's only yeah. then, a week or two later, when everything kind of settles down a bit, go, hang on a minute, we've been duped into a bloody remake. That's what we've seen here. But um, my son with James McAvoy, a master Jason Isaacs, um, I know nothing about either. So quickly, on my son with James McAvoy, what's it about? Yeah, my son, um, it's weird. Um, if you've watched the trailer, if you've seen the poster, and I'm going to quote it here, it's been called a groundbreaking achievement in filmmaking where both actor and audience uncover a mystery at the same time so that's quite you know that's a bit of a, a mouthful in terms of taglines but it actually does cover what's going on here what we have is essentially an english language remake of, of a christian carrion film a french thriller from 2007 uh, 2017 called mon garçon and the filmmaker has actually remade his own film and what's oh. going on is that he requested that the lead performer who in the 2017 film was gulame kane and is now james mcavoy that they would perform this film without a script so that's the first time I've ever heard. I mean, the, despite the fact that it was done with the French thriller, you don't hear this sort of setup every day. But uh, McAvoy is playing uh, a guy named Edmund. Claire Foy is his uh, ex-wife, Joan. Um, yeah, as I said, the divorce. She lives in Scotland and he is away on business. He's working in a job that's never really quite specified what, what exactly he does. But he has to come home to the Highlands because their seven-year-old son, Ethan, has just gone missing from, from a campsite. So he comes home and he has this weird encounter with Joan. He has this weird encounter with the police and he, they realize soon enough that the boy's been kidnapped and that you know he's basically going to have to take matters into his own hands so it's a bit of a taken uh setup you know taken in the highlands but complete entirely improvised by mcavoy now you're probably wondering how the hell that works I don't know how they made it work. I think they basically gave him something like a six-page outline. Here's a bit of character history. Here's some background. Here's what we might expect from you. Go nuts. And he really does go nuts. I mean, okay. I, I, I mean, at this stage, I'd probably watch McAvoy read the back of a takeaway menu. And the freestyle setup, you know, he has yes. the charisma. He has the talent first. Mm -hmm. The only problem is, I'll say briefly, it does prioritize McAvoy's experience over ours, which okay. means that it, it, it's thinly plotted because it needs to be, because McAvoy needs to work this thing out. So okay. it's narrative shortcomings kind of spoil the fun, but it's an interesting experiment. It's worth, it's worth a watch. Out of 10 for my son. Another solid six, I'd say. No, solid six. And then finally, finally, just very quickly, Chris, Mass with Jason Isaacs. Yeah, Mass with Jason Isaacs. Uh, the the uh, directorial debut by Frank Kranz, who's actually better known as an actor. Um, this is showing in cinemas, but it's also some cinemas, uh, but it's also on, on now in Sky Cinema this weekend. Uh, uh, very quickly, it involves two sets of parents coming together at a church in America to discuss the day that basically their lives changed forever because one set of parents, Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton, they lost their son in the school shooting. And the other set of parents, Anne Dowd and Reed Burney, they're the parents of the boy who, you know, was responsible for the gun shooting, who basically gunned down his classmates that day. And they've met six years later to discuss what happened. The only thing is they don't really seem to know what it is that they want from this meeting or why they've agreed to meet. So, you know, harsh words are exchanged and an awful lot comes up about the boy's past. It's not an easy watch. And it does actually play out in real time. So we're with them from the beginning, this from, from when this meeting starts right up until, you know, the, 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 the emotional end. It kind of plays out like a film's play. Gordon it's a little okay. bit unsteady in terms of its delivery some parts of it are overwritten some parts of it are overacted but I think it's hard is in the right place and mm. Isaacs Isaacs in particular he is especially good here as a, as a just a, a truly devastated father so again it's not really actually it's not really a film about the gun violence epidemic in America it's more kind of you know this slow burning drama on anger trauma grief and ultimately acceptance um, so again worth the watch for the performances
Great stuff. Uh, Jason, Isaacs, uh, Jason Isaacs is always very, very watchable. Out of 10 for Mass, Chris. We've got a hat trick of six out of 10 this week. Six on. out of 10. The, the number of the beast with the, yeah. our three sixes. And um, just very quickly, um, Chris, I have a challenge for you. And, Go for it. Uh, if you get a chance n- next week, I'd love you to watch the short version of Boiling Point. I know we reviewed it last week because I, I got a chance to watch both of them. And I think they are they're a great little lesson I found in how a short film gets completely changed for its cinematic version, we'll say, and um, sort of the, the, the long form version. The short film. So for those that don't know, uh, st- uh, you have uh, Stephen Graham, wonderful actor who's been in the likes of This Is England. He was in the likes of uh, Snatch, uh, The Irishman, fantastic character actor. And he plays Andy, this uh, chef who's got a lot of personal problems and it's said in a day within the confines of a, of a restaurant, but primarily the kitchen on the busiest day of the year, the Friday before Christmas. And it, imagine like a dark uh, version of Faulty Towers in the sense that everything that can go wrong is going wrong and it's just leading to more and more pressure, hence the title Boiling Point. And the um, I watched it with my wife, who is a chef, because I was intrigued to get her take on it. And I have to be honest, I thought the short version was superb in terms of what went on in the kitchen. I felt, Chris, from watching the the feature version, um, there was a number of loose ends. I'd love to get into this. I know we're kind of caught for time now, but there was a lot of subplots, I thought, in the in the long form version that were left swinging. And I came away from it and went, why didn't the director just take what he did with that short version and expand upon that because the the cast in that short version is superb not to take away anything from the um the feature uh, cast but everything was there why he decided to start meddling with it is beyond me because everything was set up so nicely to add in another say 40 odd minutes to the film but anyway i have to come away from chris going having seen both the Long form version. I came away disappointed. I I, I have to be honest with you. I, I I I just when I see that short version, I go ah, that was that was perfect. Maybe it deserves to be turned into a series or not, but I don't know. Some of that the, that feature version, I could see some of it. Uh, some of the the subplots coming a mile away, and then some of them were agonizingly left dangling. So there you go. That's my two cents on Boiling Point. I'll tell you what. I'll I'll watch that for next week, Gordon, and we'll get into it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into it. As, as a matter of fact, Andy, have you seen the short version? No, I haven't seen the short version yet. But right. You the, and again, Olivia, I agree with you with well. the other one. It's just, it's all on train, no main course. It's just, it's a wonderful ah. setup, a wonderful premise, and then just <laughs> nothing happens. It's it, the whole point of it. It's a gimmick that's one shot. And most people who go and see that, one, won't know it, and two, won't care because it doesn't enhance it in any way like if you're doing something like that and I, i'd said this to you off air gordon like that shot in goodfellas the one shot going through the the cobra is a great shot in of itself and then when you hear oh that was all done in one take it enhances it whereas this it's you know oh it was okay oh we shot in one take and you're kind of making an excuse for oh the reason it's not as good is because they've done this well if it's at the detriment of the film don't do it in one take then just you know do more than one take and don't set up plot threads that go absolutely nowhere so there we go. Next week, we're going to get into Boiling Point again. 
this is going to be like a trilogy of reviews. <laughs> so there, everyone's homework for next week. You've got to watch the short version, and 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 for listeners as well, you can you can watch the fee- you can watch the short version on Apple TV for Defo anyway, and you can definitely watch the uh, the longer version on the likes of uh, YouTube. You can rent or rent or buy it, and uh, I think Google as well, Google Play. You can watch there too, uh, guys. That'll do it for now. Um, Chris Wasser, Olivia Fay, Andy McCarroll. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris is leaving us, but Andy and Olivia will be back in part two. Um, we're going to be looking at the continued downfall of Joss Whedon. So lots to come in the second half of We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin.